Look at the adjective. Play. Now is the franchise going to take the Viagra? Oh, going to put the butts in the seat. Hello there, wrestling fans, and welcome to episode number 83 of Because WCW, the podcast where the big boys play. My name is the Twisted Genius, Dean Ayers, and I am joined as ever by my esteemed colleague, the sports journalist, the features editor of hookedonwrestling.co.uk, Liam Happ. Hello to you, Liam. Hello to you, Dean. You're very jovial today. Well, it's a big episode. It's the last episode of 2020. And let's face it, who isn't going to be glad to see the back of 2020? Indeed. The optician. See what <laughs> yes. And, and, and there you there you hear the voice of our of our guest. But uh, actually, be- before we get to our guest, can I just can I just do that intro one more time? Because I'd like to say, hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Because WCW, which is Switzerland's fifteenth most popular wrestling podcast. Yeah, and we have that certified, by the way. We received an email that uh-huh. I am adamant is on the up and up. From... Are you going to get like a little blue tick? Ah, I'm, I'm happy just with mine, to be honest, Finn. <laughs> yeah, he's already got one. I'm not at all jealous of that. But yeah, blue we, tick, we... wanker. Yeah. Who did you pay off to get that? What's <laughs> <laughs> going on there? I know brown envelopes changing hands. I mean, I know one, no one uses cash anymore. <laughs> Well, let's just say I might not be world famous like you guys in the wrestling industry, but I've I've made a name for myself in very very small pockets of the of the rest of combat sport media, and enough for yeah someone to think to themselves yeah we need to give him a blue tick. I'm not going to say no. Blue's my colour. Well, he would. And uh, the voice you can hear alongside us is. Our special guest for this Christmas Q&A. He is getting the match ball. It's his third appearance. I'm very pleased to welcome back to Because WCW, former editor of Power Slam magazine here in the UK, Finn Martin. Finn, welcome back. Thank you for having me. And uh, especially on this on this special Q&A, this Q&A episode with... We've rounded up, compiled all these amazing questions that have been sent in for this episode. And I'm really glad to be here with you both um, for what is a very different uh, format to what I've done previously. Excellent. Yeah, well, we, we did a, a Q&A last year. It went very well. And we thought, how do we make it better? We get a guest on, and not any old guest, but Finn Martin, a man full of wisdom, knowledge, and experience uh, around the wrestling world. So, um, we, we now we, question the most famous wrestling writer to come from Kendall Cumbria. <laughs> uh, we'd need to double check that. You know, uh, Have you done thorough research yeah. on this? Somebody will have to verify that, just like, you know, the Switzerland thing. Or, or, or we can just get, let's just, let's just agree, we're going to get them to stop the count on all, all of the above. Stop the count. Stop yeah. the count. Uh, I've, I've just remembered now that um, when I was a kid, my I, my mum, well, she still does, has a shoe shop. And I just remembered that she used to, she used to stock K shoes, which came from Kendall oh, Cumbria. 
Yeah, yeah, my father worked there. He oh. worked until he was uh, made redundant in 1987, I think it was. So uh, that sounds yeah. about right, yeah, because they they stopped. Yeah, she stopped having K shoes around about that time, so that makes sense. Yeah, Small I think Clarks or someone bought the name, but Clarks bought it out. Yeah, yeah, they did not have a very good name, even in Kendall. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no one really wanted to work to wear K shoes. <laughs> they really didn't, and uh, lots of people in that town used to work there. Back in the day. Not me, but my father did. And then he was made redundant. And hey, you know, he was never happy there anyway. So maybe <laughs> it was for the best. It's a blessing in disguise. Okay, so basically, um, we have had a number of questions sent in very via various um various different mediums. Um and if you do want to get hold of us, um you can you can find us on Facebook, um at facebook.com because stubs forward slash because WCW or on Twitter at because WCW. Um, we, we were inundated with questions. Thank you so much for that. We have selected the, the best, the most creative, the most intriguing. So um, I guess we'll, we'll start. We'll start. And, the, and the ones that we have a shot of answering. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so um, I'll start with, uh, we'll start at the top. This one came in via Twitter from uh, Kieran Lafort. And this is interesting because I have absolutely no memory of this. So I don't know if either of you guys do. But um, We're off to a good start. Yes, indeed. Well, this, is the, this is the five concussions talking, perhaps. Um, so legitimate question I've never found the answer to. During their 1993 feud, Max Payne shot Johnny B. Bad in the face with his bad blaster. We, I do remember that bit. But he then says, Bad appeared on TV in a mask to hide his injuries, but you could tell when he spoke that it wasn't Mark Merrow under the hood. Do you know who it was? It was Mark Merrow. It was Mark Merrow? Yes, absolutely it was. Um, I know he hated the angle. He thought it was ridiculous. He didn't like wearing the mask. Um, I mean, it just was not credible. I mean, even by WCW standards in 1993, um, I can't imagine Max Payne thought much to the angle either. <laughs> I mean, he was a guy who was like a you know a genuine shooter, and he was coming in there thinking that he was going to have a career, and here he was working a preliminary feud with Johnny B. Bad over a bad blaster shot to the face. You know, it was just like I mean, it was like a a gun that fired like confetti, wasn't it? Yeah. That's what his bad yeah. blaster was. So, I mean, there's no way that it was going to cause significant injuries to bad space, but they made him wear a mask anyway. He just thought it was an absurd angle. He really detested it. And maybe he just sounded different when he spoke because he was so despondent <laughs> over how abysmal the whole angle and storyline and feud was. That's my theory. So do you think maybe the, this is just speculation? I think Finn's answer is going to be about as good as we get here because if, if let's fight, let's put it this way: um, if this had been a Q and A like last year and it was just me and Dean, uh, this first question would have got the answer of. Huh? So uh, I'm glad <laughs> Finn was here to give uh, a more definitive answer. But one thing about the change of voice I could maybe speculate on is perhaps there was an attempt to channel a little bit of you know i know like phantom of the opry sort of you, you know like where you where your voice changes if you remember like a good recent example recent ish do you remember when um cody rhodes had facial injuries 
uh, oh, yeah. by accident and he tried to yes. play into his character like his his good looks were deformed and he he didn't really change his voice but he changed the way he delivered lines like he was he was brooding and despondent so and you and you even said there yourself in about the despondence of, of it so I don't know if there, maybe there was a, a deliberate attempt to try and play up that side of it that just came across as weird, or in Kieran's case, you, you, you're even doubting it's him, a la yeah. the Ultimate Warrior in 92. Yeah, well, I do remember um, back in the days of WCW magazine where they uh, they had a photo. Do you remember when Brian Pillman was doing the yellow dog? Yes. And uh, they had a photo that was Brian Pillman posing with the yellow dog. It shows it can't be him. And it was the most blatantly, obviously, Tom Zenk because of those massive black eyebrows that he had that looked nothing like John, that not, looked nothing like um Brian Pillman and that sticks to my mind but I, I had, the, so the reason I had no recollection of a different bloke playing Johnny B. Bad is because it was the same man so I'm, that I'm makes sense. I'm convinced it was I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm sure it was because it wasn't like a full face mask, it only, I mean it wasn't like um, you know, it wasn't like a full face mask, I don't even think his mouth was covered if memory serves me correctly so it was clearly him, so Anyway, that, that's my opinion. And if anyone has any information to the contrary, send it in. We want to hear from you. And we'll have you on the show instead of Finn. Instead of me. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> right, we'll move on to the second question. Um, so this is from um, Graham Lodge, came via Facebook. Um, I've always wondered, what was the reaction within the industry to Rey Mysterio losing his mask? And was there ever any heat on him in Mexico for putting it back on for the WWE? Um, so, yeah, because this this is where, um, obviously, in Mexico, if you lose your mask, then you, you have to unmask, say what your real name is, and then you, you wrestle unmasked for the rest of your career, generally, don't you? You're supposed to. Those are the rules, as I understand it. I mean, I'm sure, I'm, I'm quite sure they they haven't always been followed. In fact, they haven't always been followed. I know they haven't. They have, people have broken those rules. But generally, and certainly for the big stars, they have to follow. They have to abide by those rules and set the example, which is the reason why mass versus mass matches are such a big deal out there. And mm. why uh, wrestlers are paid huge amounts of money to lose their masks. So what was there was there a reaction that you're aware of in Mexico for, for what happened with Rey Mysterio, Finn? I, I believe um, he was booed pretty heavily when he went back. I, I think he did actually wrestle in the mask or was going to, and the commission got involved, and they put a stop to that. Um, I think a lot of people in Mexico felt like he'd really sold himself out because he, he lost the mask in that tag match, didn't he, at Super Bowl that year? Yeah. Was it Elizabeth's hair versus Ray's mask? I think it was, wasn't it? Does that, I think, yeah. does that ring a bell with anyone? I think, I think, so. I think you're right, because uh, Scott Hall ended up pulling double duty as well, didn't he? Yeah, it was like a tag match there. And the whole theory was, because, you know, they were going to... The famous story was that he was going to lose his mask at Halloween Havoc 97, wasn't he, in the Guerrero match? Mm -hmm. and, and there was... Right up until, I don't know, 40 minutes or half an hour before the show, the plan was still for Ray to lose the mask to Eddie in that match. Uh, and then Bischoff changed his mind and Ray was allowed to keep the mask. Is this ringing in bells with you? I'm sure it is. 
it, yeah. it does a little bit. I mean, we covered Havoc 97, and one of the things we pointed out on that review, I mean, we loved the match like everyone else did, but we did sure. point out how there was a bit of a sour finish after the bell where they had, you know, big match, title win, and they made sure to have Eddie Guerrero attack him afterwards exactly. and, yeah, and yeah. stand tall. And it made, it, it, it was, you know, especially when you consider the fact that if they are going to change their minds, and say, no, we're not going to unmask Ray here. We're going to have the babyface win the title. You'd think the reason you are changing your mind is because that moment is more valuable. And then they go and sour it with, with the with the post-match attack, which had no place being there, even if they are planning on putting the title back on Eddie soon after, which I believe they did. Uh, there, was, there was no reason to do that. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was definitely the plan there. And then Bischoff... Um, he was he was hell bent on doing it, and there was a lot of resistance from Ray. Eddie didn't want Ray to lose a mask either. You know, it was as if Bischoff didn't really understand the significance of it, and Ray actually ended up keeping the mask there. It was Hoovy, Hoovy Guerrero. Yes. Was, uh, he lost his mask to Jericho, didn't he, in early '98? It would have been Super Bowl. Yep. Yes. Super so, Bowl, yes. and that was a big big thing for Hoovy Guerrero. He didn't want to lose the mask, and he did do. Um, you know. I don't know whether it was better or worse for his career when he was unmasked. I think it possibly was better for his career in WCW. I mean, that's debatable. Uh, and then Ray lost his match, uh, lost his mask in '99 in that tag match. But in answer to the question, for what I understand, yeah, there was a lot of heat uh, from the audience on Rey Mysterio for losing the mask and then putting it back on when he signed with WWE in 2002. So he had broken, you know, the, the Lucha Libre rules. Obviously, after he lost the mask in WCW, he wrestled without the mask and, until that company closed in March of 2001. So he wrestled for a long time, like nearly, well, what was that, over two years without the mask in WCW. And then the mask went back on when he was in WWE. Yeah. So, yeah, he yeah. definitely did violate the, the, the sacred rules. And from what I understand, he did cop a lot of flack for it and the thing i always found odd with him losing that mask i i think that juventud guerrero benefited from it because you know i think he he looked quite credible he had a, uh, without the mask he had a very expressive face whereas ray facially looked like a kid basically especially with his small yeah. stature i think it really took something away and that is probably why the wwe then put the mask back on him because he was a, a lot more marketable with it on yeah, sure absolutely bischoff himself said on his podcast 83 weeks that the, the rationale was that he felt that these guys were good looking uh, and that they could use their their range of emotions without the mask. And yeah, yeah I, I agree with you, Dean. The, the argument for for Hoovy, they they are both you know good looking guys in the grand scheme of things, especially as far as if you're going to market their face on a poster. But the mask of Juventud Guerrero, while I'm sure there's there's more importance in Mexico to it than there is to you know one of us just watching those those television. Uh, the mask of Hoovy 
to WCW fans was was just another mask in the Luchador troop. Whereas Rey Mysterio masked had more identity than a lot of the other Luchadors. He was already uh, portrayed as one of the better ones because he was smaller. He was having the better matches. He was winning the titles. He he had that about him. He had that to lose. And yeah, it's um, it's, it's actually quite surprising how much more of a benefit Hoovy had from from losing it compared to Rey. Mm. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Also, was if if a wrestler loses their mask in Mexico, can they return as a new masked character, or is that frowned upon as well? Well, I, I think I mean that does happen, as I understand it. So I think they do do that. Mm. Um, but I mean, I, I think if you're a big star and you lose your mask, it then it, it, it's a, a a huge milestone in your career, and you're not supposed to wear. Mask anymore. That's why hair versus hair and mask versus mask matches are bigger than title matches out there because the significance yeah. of the mask is if you lose it, then this changes your life and your career. Um, so I mean, I think I think because there's so many matches and so many people who wrestled in in mass in Mexico, I think it's safe to say, Dean, that absolutely everything that you could think of has happened. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know whether whether it was. Uh, within the rules, or a, a, a flagrant violation of them. Here, Finn, I'm meant to be losing my mask tonight. Can you <laughs> stick it on and unmask for me? Got to have happened. Got to have. Okay, we'll move on. Um, we had, we've, we've kind of combined two separate questions here into one. This is, this is a lot to pick through, but it's going to be interesting here. Um, this is from uh, Dudley Eastbank via Twitter. He says, WCW gets hammered for not making stars, but why do you think almost none of the stars they did make really fitted in when they went to the WWF, WWE? I'm thinking of people like Luger, Vader, DDP, Goldberg, the Steiners. Whereas Mean Mark, Vinnie Vegas, Diamond Stud, Cactus Jack and Steve Austin all left WCW mid-cards and quickly became genuine main event attractions for the WWF. Um, and then he also asks, who do you think could have left WCW for WWF and become, become a star but never did? And he's suggested Brad Armstrong and Nikita Koloff. So a um, lot to pick through there. We'll start with you this time, Liam. Um, why do you think the likes of Luger, Vader, DDP and so on flops whereas Mark Hallis and Vinnie Vegas and people like that flourished I think looking through all of these it's a case of the the timeline because the only one that, that really does baffle for, for the for the names that didn't do well in the WWE is Vader Vader came in 96 he was there 97 98 this was a period where Vince McMahon had no position to be able to inflict all of his quirks and his preferences upon his business because WCW were all up in his face. They weren't massively profitable. Uh, there, there was even times you, the infamous thing with Bret Hart's contract, they seemed to be genuinely worried that they, you know, they wouldn't be financially stable at any given moment with a, with a big uh, financial move, such as a contract like that. Uh, the, the other ones are situations where they've either come after WCW has, has, has folded and lost the war and been bought out for guys like DDP and Goldberg or situations, you know, we've had the Steiners and Luger come in in the early 90s and they've, you know, all, all the, the, the Flares, the Lugers, the Steiners, they, 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 they did okay. 
but yeah, they they absolutely could have done so much more. You you would have thought, uh, and, and they just at the time, I suppose they they didn't really want to put WCW guys a, a, a above them. Whereas, you know, I, I suppose you've got me, Mark, being mentioned. He he was there for a cup of coffee, and they were able to completely reinvent him with the Undertaker gimmick. Uh, other guys really came into their own at times where there was more of an opening with the one exception being Vinny Vegas Diesel he had he had some powerful allies in the end that really helped that but the the infamous line of them is guys like Cactus Jack and Steve Austin you know this was the time where they had no choice but to make new stars so they did and when they did it worked and everyone was saying oh look in in 98 or so WWE know how to make new stars. Look at all these guys. Whereas WCW pushing the same guys. They had to do that because as we now know, with no serious competition, Vince McMahon has basically replicated pretty much every major WCW faux pas we've seen. But he's gotten away with it and sometimes he's even made more money for it because they're, they're, they are in that entrenched position. Okay. Finn? Well, um, I mean, the thing is... You could say, look at Legion of Doom. They did pretty well in WWF. I mean, probably not as well as they did in Crockett. But, I mean, you know, they did pretty well, I thought, in WWF. Rob Warriors obviously became Legion of Doom when they turned up in 1990. But I thought they did well. I mean, I thought Tully and Arn, uh, the Brain Busters, they didn't have a bad... They did all right. I mean, Rick Rude, he was a Crockett guy. He did really nothing. I mean, he was in the tag team with Manny Fernandez, went to WWF, did well there. So, I mean, they did all right there. Um, you know, obviously, you got Mean Mark. He was a mid-card player. Um, I don't think he was ever really going to make it in WCW. Certainly under, you know, he came in as a as a skyscraper, didn't he? To, did yeah. he play Sid, who I think was injured again? Sid, Sid had um, punctured his lung, I think, and so they brought in... Mean Mark with um, Dan, Dan Spivey, yeah. Yeah, so Mean Mark, I think he came from Memphis. Um, so, I mean, you know, he didn't really do that well in WCW, of course. Went to WWF and it was a completely new gimmick. And, you know, I remember seeing that in 1990 when it debuted, as I'm sure you both did as well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, And I was, <laughs> I mean... I was kind of mesmerized by it and certainly by the way in which he was booked to just destroy. I remember he absolutely pulverized Dusty that night. Mm. And I remember thinking to myself, my God, I mean, this guy's a monster. It's like, oh, he's, he was the guy who was, you know, working mid-card matches with, you know, Lex Luger, who ended up basically being sent home in disgrace. He, he, he famously had a house show match with Sting and supposedly it was so bad that um, Harley Race was brought in as like an emergency substitute to face Sting the next night. Oh, so, I mean, right. Yeah, that's that's quite, a, if you go, go back and look up a history of WWE, it's quite a famous story from the WCW house show in 1990. Um, so he left there on bad terms. Obviously, Vinny Vegas was just, you know, second match guy, didn't really do much. WWF obviously needed to push people because it had very few stars. He came in, Shawn Michaels liked him. He was a bodyguard, obviously a very handsome guy. Massive guy. Big, big guy as well. Vince likes big guys, we know that. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of openings in 94, 95 in WWF because 
you know, they had so few stars. So he got the shot there. Same with Diamond Stud. I mean, Razor Ramon was just, um, it was a similar character to that, to that, but also uh, then based uh, partly on Tony Man Montana from Scarface. Mm. Um, so, I mean, he did well. He, he became sort of open mid-card player. I mean, Cactus Jack was a guy who I think did do well in WCW, but obviously Cactus Jack Mankind did far better in WWF. Steve Austin was a guy who I, I thought was going to be a top top player in, in WCW. And had Hogan not come in in 1994, I think he might have been. Uh, but of course, Hogan came in, brought his buddies. Austin was pushed down the card. Um, you know, then had the injuries. Bischoff famously fired him in 95, went to ECW, then went to WWF. So, I mean, to me, it's a mixed bag. And some people have done better in, in certain in one company and other people have done better in the other company. Yeah. And I don't think if there's, there's a particular rhyme or reason to why someone does well or why a company makes stars out of, you know, more people than the other company does. I mean, you know, Dusty, when he came into WWF in 1989. 89, yeah. 89, yeah. I mean... He probably did better in WWF, even though he's a bit of a comedy character. He probably did better there than he would have done had he stayed in WCW, because he was pretty much finished by them, wasn't he? I mean, I know he got he, he was there was no future for him there after everything that went down. Yeah. To me, there's, there's I don't think you can really say, well, why does this company do this and why does this company have more success than this company when it comes to developing talent or making stars out of people from the other company? You see, I think I... if you really look into it, drill down. Yeah. There's success and failures on both sides. You see, when I look at this question, generally speaking, to me, the answer is staring me in the face. Because I'm thinking here, you look at the names that Dudley's listed. Lex Luger, who was Lex Luger in WCW, went to the WWF and was Lex Luger. Vader was called Vader in both places. So was DDP, so was Goldberg, so were the Steiners. Mean Mark goes to WWF, changes gimmick completely, is The Undertaker. Vinny Vegas changes gimmick completely, is Diesel. Diamond Studies, you said there, there are there are similarities, but it's a, it's a new character in Razor Ramon. Um, Cactus Jack isn't Cactus Jack, he's Mankind. And yes, Steve Austin's still called Steve Austin, but you know he became successful as, well, he was the ringmaster, then he was Stone Cold. So yeah. all these people who succeeded their characters were created by Vince McMahon. Whereas the people that that came in off the back of success in WCW, they kind of brought their gimmicks with them. Their yeah. gimmicks weren't created by Vince. He therefore, to me, I don't think he was as invested in those gimmicks because they weren't his. And we all know yeah. how Vince thinks that if, it, if he didn't create it, it's not worth the time of day. Yeah, that's <clears throat> very true in many cases. Yeah, very true. But I mean, also you look at Vader, I mean, his best years were a distant memory by 96. He needed major shoulder surgery as soon as he got there. Uh, we did an interview with him in Power Slam in 2013, and he explained all what went wrong. And it was that major balls up between his manager and his and the office. And, oh, it was it's a long story. But he was not the guy that he'd been in the Sting feud in 93 or in the matches with Hashimoto and Muto and all these other guys in New Japan. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, DDP the same, you know what I mean? He'd had a good run in WCW. Was he really a top guy? I mean, he kind of was. But, I mean, you know, to me, he was a guy that would hold the title and then he would be a caretaker champ and then he'd put someone else over. He was not a proper bona fide main eventer. He was like, you know, the next step down. Um, Steiners, 
I mean, I'm not quite sure why they didn't. They should have really done better than they did in WWF. That's probably the only one on that list. Goldberg, obviously, he came in. There was a lot of heat on him. There was a lot of problems. They wanted to change the character because Vince, as you just said, Dean, he likes to he likes to he likes to have the creative control and do he believes he can do he can do something better than anyone else yeah. so when another company has proven that it, it can do something perfectly vince isn't necessarily or certainly back in the day he wasn't going to copy that he was going to do it a different way because he could do it better so i mean you had all that sort of baked in you had a lot of things working against these guys who were ready-made stars whereas the people who weren't stars in many ways they were better placed to become stars in wwf because then Vince could put his stamp on them and he could get behind them and endorse them. And, and you know, he could believe them. Did you see that footage of uh, that's come out of uh, Vince talking to Keith Lee where he's, you know, he's talking to him backstage. No, I haven't. No. Yeah. Vince is, Vince is, you know, putting Keith Lee obviously saying, well, you know, you're a great athlete. Promos are really good, you know, but you know, I, you need to do something so I can believe in you. And he actually says those words to him. I need to believe in you. And we've all we've all known that that's the way it is there. And yeah, he's he's actually on film saying that. Wow. So because that's the way it is there, he has to yeah. be a character, doesn't he? I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, and if he doesn't, then it's just like, well, I'm not interested because I don't believe in it and that's yeah. that. And and what about this this second part where where Dudley asks, who do you think could have left WCW for WWF and become a star but never did? I mean, he's listed Brad Armstrong, who I think would have been far too small, and, and Nikita Koloff, who is a possibility. But, I mean, the obvious person there, surely, is Sting. Yeah. What do you think, Liam? What, what's your opinion on this? Um, I, I think the pattern we've seen with a few of these uh, WCW to WF names we've mentioned is, yeah, there was, like, as we've all said, really, there, there was a middling degree of success. Flair, Luger, Steiners. But... Yeah, the, the shelf life it seemed to be was limited. Uh, there was there was no intent to, to make them long-standing cornerstones of the promotion. We know that if if Vince McMahon wants someone to stick around, he'll he'll have them in a in a showcased uh, position for as um, as much as 20 years. You think even guys like um, Randy Orton and bringing Edge back, guys like that, they'll they'll keep running them as much as they can. Uh, yeah. 30 years of The Undertaker, for crying out loud. Uh, they would have them in, and I think Sting would fall in that same thing. We'd get a very interesting 18 months, 24 months tops, because he's just too damn charismatic to not. But then, then the shelf life would run out, and we kind, you know, when you when you had that later run, oh, he was he was quite advanced. He had a similar thing. The novelty was there. People popped for him. They. The match results were just absolutely ridiculous against him. He left with a sour taste in his mouth, but he was still a fantastic uh, presence on the show for what limited he did. And I think that's where he'd always be. As for the the last question of that of, of that particular segment, Brad Armstrong's a sort of guy. If he, if he'd have gone over because he'd have, you know worn masks and and played roles and that, you could see him having very gainful employment over there. But yeah, he wouldn't have been a star, and he wasn't a star in WCW either because he wasn't the star. Not just because of side, but we always mention he was always the the solid hand, the mortar to the bricks. Yeah. We say we say this on almost every episode we see him, don't we, Dean? But that was yeah. what he was, and you could imagine a, a, a Vince McMahon would have seen that and found 
you know, he probably would have had 10 to 15 years of work there uh, yeah. in the in in the background, in the in the shadows. I mean, I could see him if he was ever to come into WWF. I could have seen him coming in in the era of Freddie Joe Floyd, T.O. Hopper, <laughs> the Goon, yeah. that that kind of time, and some sort of menial I, job gimmick. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, because I I think you know you look at you look at um, you know Tracy Smothers, who, who we lost recently, who was such a such a great talent, such a just that again that mortar to the bricks, the man who could put matches together with anyone, and you look at what he did in the WWF, and I think that's where that's where someone like Brad Armstrong would have been. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, he was. I mean, I think it was Ric Flair who used to like marvel at how good Brad Armstrong was. And he was just this incredible worker. And I, th- I think I actually saw a match of him versus, could have been Buzz Sawyer on an old Georgia Championship Wrestling TV show from about 1982 or something like that. And like, you know, he was on there with Buzz and Buzz was just selling for him like he was a main eventer. And Brad Armstrong had all this respect in the locker room because he was so smooth in the ring and just knew yeah. how to do everything. But he didn't have everything else. He didn't have the qualities that you need to become a star. He just did not have them. And uh, I think he ended up having a match with Goldberg on one of the pay-per-views. And he wore a T-shirt which read Armstrong Curse or something yes. on that. I think that was a Super Bowl as well, actually. I'm pretty yeah. sure, yeah. It was where Goldberg did um, the one-armed jackhammer. Yeah, I think it was 98, I think that was. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just as we knew that Goldberg, Goldberg's obviously going to become a star. And I... Armstrong came out. It's like, yep, yeah, I'm here to do the job again. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I'm, you know, hundred times the worker that this guy will ever be, you know. But that's not what pro wrestling's about. Absolutely. So, I mean, to me, it's like I don't know really who could have made it. Nikita Koloff. I don't think so. He was quite a limited guy. Um, he was one of Dusty's buddies. He was not leaving. Why H- would he? Hogan fodder. He, he he had Hogan fodder written all over him, didn't he? If they ever got their hands on him. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, I've got to say, he, he was very convincing and had a lot of charisma and a lot of presence. He was very, I, I thought he really exuded menace, which so few, so few villains do today, but he did. And um, I mean, he, and you go back and look at the Crockett talent roster, it's so good back then that they, they could make guys like that shine, even though he was really green. Uh, so maybe he could have done well as, yeah, as an opponent from Hogan, you know, in the, this Cold War era. Um, you know, there again, he could have ended up as the third Bolshevik, couldn't he? And that would have been, that would have been curtains for him, wouldn't it? So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Sting's, Sting's the one that everyone always mentions. And he didn't go. He could have gone many times and he didn't because he was worried about the way he would be used. And look at what happened in 2015. Yep. You know? Yeah, very good point. Um, okay, this next one, um, this is more, much more specifically for you than the rest of us, Finn, but it's from Lee Stevens on Facebook. He wants to know, um, what were your views on being at Halloween Havoc 99 show, uh, especially Sid V. Goldberg? Um, yeah, I was there. It was in Vegas. It was the MGM Grand Garden, Grand Garden Arena. Um, one thing that I really liked about it was because they were on Pacific time. It started really early. It started at like 5 p.m., so it was finished before 8 p.m. We were we were out on the piss after that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a lasting memory. <laughs> it's like, oh great, what a brilliant time to have a wrestling show, 5 p.m. And we were yeah, we were back on the strip before 8 p.m. And uh, you know, <laughs> putting 
No way. So, no, I enjoyed the show. I mean, I remember in the time in Power Slam, I, I, I called it Going Places. And people said, well, did you use Going Places or a travel agent at the time? To, you know, because this was kind of, you, I think you probably could book a holiday on the internet in 99, but yeah. most people didn't. You used a travel agent. I was like, no, we went through Lumpoly. I'm not <laughs> sure if they still exist. So I, I remember the show and I, I was really optimistic. I was really, I really felt like, because this was just after Russo and Ferrara arrived. I believe they started, was it the previous Monday? I think it was. Okay. I think they just started, so they were running the show at this point. Um, and it just felt like a different WCW. Uh, and I've got to say, I did want to believe that these two had the answers and that these two would make WCW great again. And of course they didn't. <laughs> but on the night, I, I mean, I quite enjoyed the show. As to Sid versus Goldberg, um, I watched that again today and the memories came flooding back and it was a really dramatic match. Actually, one of Sid's best ever singles matches, I I reckon, and that's against Goldberg. I mean, there were the usual timing problems with Sid and his offense always kind of looked a bit flim, a bit puny, didn't it? I mean... You know, his matches really weren't that sturdy. So, and I was amused when uh, Goldberg smashes his head into the ring steps and then he goes down to Blade. And then he's like, I mean, Sid wasn't a frequent bleeder, was he? He didn't Not bleed so very often. So he goes down to Blade and he's trying to work because obviously the finish of the match is blood stoppage. So it's got to be a, you know, it's got to be a significant Blade job, right? It can't be. Can't be Lex Luger at Great American Bash 1988. We can't have a repeat of that, you know. So extra, uh, extra um, aspirin for Sid tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so he does it once, and then referee Mickey J comes over. I like Mickey J. It's giving him clearly giving him instructions on on the blade jobs. <laughs> do it again. So he does it again, and and he bleeds loads. And I thought it was a pretty good match. And it's it's a stoppage finish. Sid's selling is actually pretty good. Um, at the end of the match, Rick Steiner comes out, helps Sid to the back. He's staggering all over the place. At one point, goes down to one knee, appears disorientated. And, like, you know, he's selling better than a lot of people in wrestling do today, particularly in that company that tips his shows at Daly's Place. So, I mean, it's just like, I actually, yeah, I actually thought it was a pretty good show on the, a pretty good match on the night, and I enjoyed the show as well. Uh, but going back, I thought the match held up pretty well. Yeah, Russo and Ferrara. Oh, that that really turned out to be an Alan Pardew situation. As far, like the, the, well, the, doing the dance on the halfway line. Yeah, exactly. No, Alan Pardew managed to uh, forge a reputation for a long period of time. To this day, he probably still gets the 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 work he still gets in the last five years is much better than he deserves. Um, but he would always manage to to come in with all this promise and and razzle dazzle, uh, and even once explicitly referred to it as the new manager bounce, because I think he was upset that before he became the West Brom manager, one of his more recent gigs, uh, the caretaker put in charge while they while they dotted the i's and crossed the t's actually had a, a nice little mini run of form with the baggies and he was upset because it was ta- in his mind it was taking away his new manager bounce which apparently oh. he's entitled to just by walking into a new gig 
where everyone's obviously g'd up because the the failure of a last guy has gone and that's exactly what we had there in in that late period of 99 wcw it was exciting because it wasn't the 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 garbage we'd had for the rest of 99 when the penny dropped as we discussed if you remember finn and dean on on our last little get together we're uh, reminiscing 25 years of nitro we talked about the uh that that drop in 99 and what could have yeah. been and what they could have done better yeah. Uh, and people were, as you said there yourself, Finn, everyone was really optimistic. And yeah. it's fair enough for me once then, and everyone saw what he was made of. But he still managed to get that new manager bounce in so many other gigs, even when everyone was really well informed of exactly what he had to offer or lack thereof. So, yeah, he really is the Alan Pardew of wrestling. Right. I've yeah. um, I've also realised we've uh, we've not uh, we've never covered Halloween Havoc '99, so maybe that's that's one for a future uh, a future episode. Who knows? Um, okay, yeah. well, next um, next question is from Bryn Howells via Facebook, um, and he says, "What can you tell us about the WCW Worldwide show on Channel Five in the late '90s, early noughties? Did it draw good ratings for the station and time slot? Why was it so out of date?" Uh, was it put together specifically for Channel 5 or shown in other markets? And how big a role do you think it played in WCW drawing some big houses on their March 2000 UK tour? Um, so, Liam, did you go to that? Did you go to the March 2000 one at London like me? I did not go to the March 2000. You didn't go to I went, I you, went to the you Nitro missed a treat, taping. my friend. Yeah, <laughs> I, heard I went. To, I went to the Nitro taping in late 2000. But I don't really have much. I might as well get my contributions to this question out of the way because there's not many. Uh, I don't have much insight into how it performed on the analytics. Uh, the Channel 5 world, but I do have many happy memories. It was nice to get back on. You know, I was very uh, conscious of uh, of what we always mentioned, the ITV era growing up. I was a yep. I was a teenager at secondary school when the Channel 5 era came, and I appreciate having that dose. Loved the time slot, Friday early evening. It was really good, I thought, especially for my age at the time, I suppose. And I always remember the silly little things they did, like the, uh, the Batman... <laughs> Uh, yeah, pow wow to cover me. up the weapon shots I enjoy. I really enjoyed Scott Hudson as a commentator you know like a lot of lead commentators he had the he had the the over-reliance on cliches sometimes but he had a good voice for it he was quite grounded I thought he was an underappreciated commentator but he always got paid much better in his day job didn't he so he never really had to lean too much on wrestling uh but yeah, that, that's all I've really got as a fan. But I'm sure Finn's going to be much more insightful on the on the era of Channel Five. I think it ran until the company was over. They had worldwide. Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, I think it started in July '99. I can tell you that the first episode. This is from the pages of Power Slam. The first episode on Channel Five drew 790,000 viewers. So I mean, Channel Five to me was always a. It's still to this day is a down market channel. I mean, I never watch Channel 5. I mean, obviously, it's beneath me. You know, a man of my distinction does not watch Channel 5. But no, in all honesty, it is a bit of a crappy channel, isn't it? So, I mean, you could say that WCW at this point in its existence was a perfect fit for Channel 5. (laughs) Bro, 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, things were pretty grim by this point, weren't they? Summer of 99. Bischoff was about to, they were about to hand him his cards, you know, on your bike, son. You know, he was about to be given the boot. And then uh, Russo and Ferrara were coming in as the saviors uh, in October. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, it was, I've watched a couple of the episodes today on YouTube or online, and it was a mishmash of, mishmash of matches. Uh, try saying that after you've yeah. had a few, um, well, from Saturday night and other shows. And the 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 matches were, were really dated. They were like several weeks behind, like four or five weeks after they'd aired in the States. And out uh, of order as well, weren't they? Out of, and out of order. order. Out of order. But, but there again, occasionally, they would show some big matches. Like, for instance, they showed the famous Bret Hart versus Chris Benoit match from Nitro. That was shown on Channel 5. The reason I know that is because someone wrote a letter into Power Slam about it and read about it today and I completely forgotten. Um, but you're right about them putting the 1960s Adam West Batman uh, <laughs> captions to cover up the chair shots and, and what have you. And, and that, for many people, is the way it's remembered. Yeah. Um, you know, for, I guess in a sense, you know, this is, you know, some people had the internet by this point. I did. I, did, I think I got the internet in 97. But obviously this is long before broadband this is everyone still on dial-up so it's not like you can watch stuff really online or it was far more difficult um so i mean i think a lot of people were just grateful you know to have any wcw by this point but in many ways it typified wcw you've got this time slot on terrestrial tv you know 790,000 viewers that's a hell of a lot more than dynamite draws today on itv4 you know you've got this terrestrial tv slot and instead of giving the viewers something that's up to date and quality uh, and really uh, depicts WCW at its best, you know, even though it obviously was in a, a weak and depleted state by this point. But instead of like showing, say, a, a compilation of matches from previous week's Nitro, for instance, they could have done like a one hour version of that. Instead of doing that, they just give you a lot of matches from um, from. WCW Saturday Night, which by this point was, of course, like the C, you know, the C show. Nitro was the A show. Thunder, they'd given up on Thunder by this point, but that was the B show. And Saturday Night was the C show. I mean, uh, the matches I watched today um, from the old worldwide show that was screened on Channel 5 during this era pitted La Parker versus Kenny Chaos, Psychosis versus Shark Boy. Uh, and um, and various other kind of you know jobber matches. Yeah. So I mean it was just classic WCW. You got TV show. This should be showing the best of what you have to offer, and instead you show the worst. I also remember that they would actually have Hudson and Armando Quintero, or sometimes Larry Zabisco, whoever was the, the second commentator. Um, mm. They would actually have to work overtime in retconning the storylines of what you were seeing on the TV screen because they were being shown out of order. And especially when they started to get to some Russo era stuff where there's all these swerves and all that, they're having to explain why the the heels and the faces are falling out, then showing it's all part of the planning. Oh no no no, they're actually falling out again. Oh here's the, it was it was really jumbled up like that. Uh, yeah, I'm I trying mean, to think just... of one good example, but they're doing it on a weekly basis because it was so out of order. Like they would show the thunder after 
that nitro on that same episode, but they'd want the nitro content to finish off the show because more often than not, it's got the bigger names. Uh, and they, they I remember Armando Quintero was like the Telemundo guy, but he could speak pretty good English. So they'd have him on uh, and he'd be pretending to be pro NWO 2000. Imagine that gig. And uh, trying to explain the way all the all the swerves and the and, and the fractured swerves we're seeing, which is like a whole new level of swerve. It was yeah. just there was yeah you're right. There, there's just no way you can get into it. But as for the actual Saturday night content, I I will not stand here and let you besmirch the honour of matches such as the Revolution versus the Vianos. <laughs> and Chris Benoit versus Devon Storm was on a Saturday night, and that was actually a really good match. So yeah. Yeah, there, there was there was some low key bangers uh, because I, I remember like G- Jimmy Hart was basically allowed to book Saturday Night at one point, wasn't he? Yeah. And you can see they great. had their own story. Like there, there was an actual Viano's Revolution feud that went over several episodes, and they had like a tornado tag team match that was essentially the Revolution squashing the Vianos, which. <laughs> but see, it was it was actually just. You know, for a WCW fan like myself, it was it was new content that I couldn't watch otherwise. And if they had their ducks in order with everything else, I wouldn't mind that match. And then, yeah, you, you made your stuff from Nitros. Why not? Yeah, if they had their ducks in a row, but they yeah. didn't because WCW. Because WCW. <laughs> okay. I mean, also, to, I mean to try and answer the other questions, I'm not sure if this was shown in other markets. Quite possibly. Um, and as for whether or not this had a bearing on the big houses that WCW drew in March 2000 for that disastrous tour, and I was at the Manchester leg, it was obviously uh, commercially, financially a huge hit, but uh, creatively, artistically, a calamity. And I'm sure you remember this, Dean, and you probably remember it as well, Liam, was that um, Watchdog ended up doing an item on this. just about to say yes. Because all the people that were pictured on the ticket weren't there. Shameless yeah. false advertising. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, go, I remember going to the Manchester show and it was like a funereal atmosphere at the end. I mean, it was like, was it the, was it the Harris? Was it Harris's against the Mamelukes? The Mamelukes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's your lot. People were astounded. <laughs> people just sat there, just could not believe what they were witnessing. And again, here we go with WCW with the biggest houses they would draw all year, probably biggest houses they'd drawn since uh, Jan, February of 1999, when it all completely went to hell for them. Um, you know, but, I mean, they're still doing decent business into February for the Nitros and, and for the pay-per-views as well. Um, and so this was like the best numbers they'd done in like a year. And the, they've got the balls, you know, to ship that line up over um, and I think Bret Hart actually he insisted that he come over and do a speech yeah, because he couldn't wrestle him. at that point yeah, and yeah. like you know they probably wouldn't have been bothered if he wasn't there and I think to a lot of people Bret's appearance was the highlight of the show mm-hmm. and um, yeah but just classic WCW it was like I believe at the time Sting had gone on strike he just said <laughs> no, he'd just gone home <laughs> and it was just like how the hell can you possibly feel like this is value for money for all these people who paid all this money to see your shows and haven't seen WCW live in the UK from how when was the last time WCW been in the UK? See, it was they done ninety they'd done ninety-four in I, I remember they had when that was at Wembley with like Hogan and Flair main event. That's right. And then 
I don't think they. I, I I honestly can't remember if they did anything after that until until that tour because they were doing so well in the states. They basically didn't need to come over. I don't think they did. They, they did a few dates in Germany mm. and all that, but I don't think they came over in the interim. And it was like that probably would explain why there was such an appetite for seeing WCW live. Yeah, and, but- uh, and then you know that appetite. People very quickly lost their appetite after seeing those shows. Yeah, well, I, I, I think I'm right in saying that the 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 people featured on the posters and on on the physical. This was back in the day; you'd still have physical paper tickets, and I'm pretty sure it was Sting, Goldberg, and Kevin Nash on the ticket, and yeah. none of them were there. Yeah, I think Goldberg. At Goldberg, when did Goldberg suffer the arm injury? Was that the end of 2000 or the end of 99? I think it was the end of 2000. End of end of ninety nine, early two thousand. Literally oh. as NWO two thousand formed, wasn't it? That's right. So he was still nursing that injury, wasn't he? Um and you know, Brett obviously retired but did come over to do the promos. Sting had gone on strike. You know, I mean the result I mean, it was just appalling that WCW would shortchange its audience in that fashion. Mm. But I mean, you know, this is you know, these, this is one, not the only reason, of course, but one of like 250 reasons or a thousand reasons why WCW went under. You know, yeah. didn't make it. Yeah. And there were I mean, so many people who wanted this company to succeed, and it obviously it didn't. Yeah, I mean, you think about when um, TNA would come over for their annual tour at the very end of January, and that would always be the biggest venues that they would play all year. Yeah. Um, so Wem- Wembley Arena, Manchester Arena, Birmingham, I think they do the Hydra in Glasgow. And they they would pull out all the stops. I mean, yeah, we I remember I remember we had the absolutely tremendous match between Spard and EC three. We had um Kurt Angle and Bobby Lashley, we had Hogan on the bill at one time. We, yeah, they 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 got out the best China, so to speak. Yeah, they absolutely did. I mean, I think I think TNA actually drew its largest crowd in its history in London, I believe. Could have been for the first Kurt Angle tour, the first or the second. I believe that's correct. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, they they recognised that this was their number one market for selling tickets and that they had to load up the shows and they had to give their audience value for money. And yeah. by doing that, that would encourage repeat business. It's not difficult. It really is. No. Okay. Next question comes in from uh, it's another one from Dudley Eastbank. Actually, he asks, um, with the artistic success of the Kip Fry period in early 1992, do you think he should have been allowed to continue for a while longer to see if improved reputation could gradually turn into commercial success? So, I mean, we we've covered um, WrestleWar 92, which was just the week that Bill Watts came in and that was the the beginning of the end of the tremendous dangerous alliance stings squadron storyline that and that was to me that's the era of um of of my wcw worldwides and and um staying up late on i'm watching it on itv and that was a tremendous tremendous era of 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 uh of wcw wrestling really yeah Um, i agree yeah absolutely and it, it did seem like a very bright period in, in WCW. I mean, they got rid of Jim Hurd, Kip Fry had come in. I don't think he really knew that much about pro wrestling, but he wanted to learn. Um, no one has a bad word to say about Kip Fry, not even Eric Bischoff. You know what I mean? He is so well regarded. 
but I think he only lasted, it was about five or five or six months, I think it was, before Watts took over. From what I understand, Kip was spending too much money. That, that's as I understand it. Um, he was paying, he was signing like guys like Brian Pillman to like $250,000 a year contracts, you know, $200,000 a year contracts, which was big money at the time for a mid-card player, you know, paying people incentive bonuses. From what I understand, he really did want to, uh, implement a proper drug testing policy. There was a lot of things he did uh, for the betterment of the talent in terms of, you know, their well-being and also in terms of their financial status and their financial um, benefits and and everything else. So he was very well regarded. Uh, and absolutely, I'm with you with you there, Dean. I mean, I thought it was a tremendous period for the company. We had. You know, Justin Liger came in. We had that Justin Liger-Brian Pillman series. That was really good. Obviously, Wrestle War 92 was just like the culmination, or what actually ended up being the culmination, sadly, of the uh, of the Sting squadron and, um, you know, Sting and the Babyface versus the Dangerous Alliance feud. Yeah. To me, the best War Games match ever by a man. Absolutely, yes. And, uh, you know, it was like, what was it, 20, I think it was 23 minutes or something. Contrast that with that 45 minute, minute epic that NXT's just put on. And it's just like, you tell me which match was most memorable and which match you would want to watch again. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, Kip Fry to me was a guy that did seem like he had his head screw up, screwed on and really had a lot of really good ideas for WCW. But as I understand it, the reason that he was replaced was because they wanted someone who could cut costs and try to balance the budget. That's my understanding. And of course, you do that by making Dick Slater and the Barbarian your US tag team champions. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) What do you think, Liam? Yeah, I'm in agreement. I mean, a lot lot of Bill Watts' business moves were flat out designed to hammer it down like the way he treated some of the guys who were on the big money such as Pillman and the Steiners really speaks volumes about that uh, yeah it's, it's it's tough trying to think of a good modern equivalent but it does really happen a lot in sports where I suppose one, no one will get this reference but I'm a, I'm a Philadelphia sports fan and there's a similar thing happening at the moment with the Philadelphia Phillies where they're trying to use uh, the pandemic as an excuse to hammer down their operating costs even though it's not like they're going to be short of cash because they operate in this nice establishment where it's the same like 30 teams every year and they make billions of dollars so they just want to you know, as I always say, never never let a good recession go to waste. But yeah, you <laughs> see this stuff across the sporting, I suppose also the arts board all the time. And it's really unfortunate that whenever we're close to getting something that's, that's fan-friendly, and yes, sometimes it can cost a little more, but it also makes people want to give you their money. They then decide, no, we're going we're gonna to go to the lowest common denominator and just hammer down expenses, even if it drives everyone away. Such a shame. But those blue mats around the edge of the ring, they, they cost an awful lot of money to transport. <laughs> oh, man, alive. You know? Yeah, thank goodness they didn't have to fork out yes. on those. <laughs> okay. Um, move on to, the, this is a good one. Um, Phil Austin via Facebook has asked, who do you feel was the most misused wrestler in WCW? A man or woman who could have been in the main event scene yet never progressed past the lower mid card purely due to poor handling or booking. I'll throw to you first, Liam. What's your thoughts on this one? 
Well, as we discussed for a little bit in our, in our last uh, three-man gathering for the, the 25th of Nitro, you could basically throw a rock at the 98 mid-card roster and you'll probably land on someone who'd be a candidate for this. Uh, the Ravens, the Booker Teaser, Chris Benoit, and a lot of those in retrospect come with a bit of an asterisk, you know, obviously with Benoit. Booker T ended up, you know... Even though there wasn't much to his headline run in the in the latter months of WCW, it was enough to elevate his standing to help him make a nice amount of money in WWE and TNA. So you could call that an elevation to where he'd want it to be. Uh, I suppose it, it goes against the spirit of the question because I know Phil explicitly says about lower mid card, but the most misused wrestler in WCW for me had to be Goldberg. Because I'm not exaggerating, Goldberg really could and should have been the next Hogan. The the absolute franchise star. I think Bobby Heenan was spot on you, uh, when he said, you don't, you don't have him lose a match, you keep it going. The only time you really want to see Goldberg lose a match is if he gets to a point where everyone's so sick of him always winning that they're booing him. And then you have him lose a match and everyone's happy to see him lose. And the guy who beats him is 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 loved. And then you've got a satisfactory finish to it rather than the damp squib we got at Starcade 98 that Kevin Nash swears blind he had no control over. Okay, Kevin, sure thing, bud. Um, yeah, he obviously he was the champion. He was a headliner and he's still milking that in 2020 WWE to this day. But no, he, re- he, he, he should have been just up there in in another stratosphere uh as far as mid carders go ooh, eddie guerrero considering what we what we saw him do in wwe and what we i think also what where, where we've been doing our nitro watch along yeah and we have seen that aside from your your headliners yeah your, your the, the hogan flair sting luger savages Eddie Guerrero seems to be one of the most frequently used wrestlers on that show so far, but yeah, never, never gets anywhere really has, has great matches, always gets a good reaction from the crowd, but is, that is kept to that certain level. That match with Flair, May 20th, 1996, is the most recent watch along we've done. If you're listening to this, Go one episode backwards and you know watch it along with us. Fantastic television match, fantastic match wherever you plonk it. Really, uh, yeah, you're right, Dean. He, he should have been so much more and through no fault of his own. Yeah, and, and I think yeah, you say you the like. I mean, Raven is such a, an intelligent wrestler, such a great wrestling mind. Um, a gimmick for the for the time that he was around as well. Um, that could have done done a lot more. He, I mean, he he was still at the same level in WWF as well. So you know, both both companies are, are guilty of that, I suppose. Yeah, but... people, people. Sorry, Dean. People look at levels like, oh, he should be there. He should be there. Well, sometimes we shouldn't really talk as far as who is a main eventer, who is a mid carder. Like they have to only mingle with each other. Look at it from the other way. Look at it laterally. Sting versus Raven in a program. You know. Even if it's the only time Raven ever interacts with a main eventer in WCW, they robbed us of that because that would have been amazing. And that's the way yeah. you've got to look at it. Would these people make a great 
bit of television together? Would they make a great main uh, a pay per view match? Would that would they do that? It doesn't matter if it ends up, and, and you never know if all thing all goes well. Raven could be minted as a top line player because of that interaction. But even if he doesn't, it's still worth doing that feud. Well, Sting became a, a main eventer because someone way back when in 1988 believed in him and gave him a time limit draw with Ric Flair at the first ever clash. So yeah, you gotta you gotta take a chance on some. Chris Jericho's another one, and and you look at how the WWE or WWF at the time threw him straight into a, a big program and interrupting The Rock. And immediately he was at a level that he was never at in, in WCW. What were your thoughts on this one, Finn? Um, I mean, it's a tricky one, really, because, I mean, we over on Inside the Robs, we, uh, I, I uh, participate in the reviews each month for the 20-year-old pay-per-view. And we just recently reviewed Survivor Series 2000. Uh, on that show, Chris Jericho got a match with Kane, and it was foul. I mean, not as bad as Jericho's match with Kazarian on last week's Dynamite which was one of the worst things I've seen this year. Uh, you know, my God, that match was bad. But I mean, the match with Kane from, two, from Survivor Series 2000, you watch that and it's like, mm, you know, was this guy really a top guy? And I would argue, actually, in many ways, he did better in WCW than he did in WWF in his first year. I mean, he came out and interrupted The Rock and didn't really, you know, very soon he was in deep trouble. He was trying to redo the Ralphus thing. And then he was like in this prelim feud with X-Pac and people backstage were burying him. And there was rumors that he'd been offered a contract release and he had some good matches, but he also had some really bad matches in that company. His character was all over the place. Well, he Uh, credits X-Pac with saving his WWE career during that feud. Apparently he was saying that he got tips and advice from him about how to tweak things in his matches and, and basically well, I guess going back to what we were talking before, making Vince McMahon believe in him. Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, I mean, he was somebody who was very inconsistent. If you, I mean, he had some amazing matches with Triple H. If you remember, in April two thousand, he had that uh, last man standing match. I think it was uh, was it Judgment Day? Not Judgment Day. Fully loaded two thousand. They had like a really good match there. So he did have some good matches with certain people, but he had some really bad matches with other people. And Jericho to me is a guy who's never really mastered the art of working with big guys. Remember he had that feud with JBL in, I think it was 2008. I mean, that was a disaster. Uh, really poor. Maybe it was 2009. Uh, was around about then anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, that was really, no, it was 2008. It was really bad. Um, so, I mean, yeah, Jericho was a guy who, you know, he ended up going to WWF. He was going to do that anyway. I think he'd realized that he peaked in WCW and really cracking that glass ceiling and really going further for him was, was I just don't think it was something that was going to happen. So I think he did make the right decision going to WWF. But all I'm saying is when he was there, this sort of myth of him being this, you know, guy who was this main, you know, main eventer and this brilliant performer there who had this glorious run. I mean, it was really spotty. Uh, I agree that Raven's somebody who I think could have done a lot better than he did in WCW. It was a very interesting character. I'm not sure if WCW ever really understood it. Um, I mean, and also the thing is, if you go back and look at what he did in ECW, the things that made that character work there, he couldn't have done in a PG-rated company like WCW. He couldn't have done, you know, all the sort of symbolism and, 
you know, the, he just, you know, there's a lot of like drug references and things of mm. that nature and all sorts of other things that they weren't going to allow him to do. Um, and I think he very quickly lost his motivation because he realized that he was not going to crack the upper echelon of that company. It just wasn't going to happen because it was there was too many people in his way. It was so bloated, wasn't it? That was a problem. It was such a top heavy talent roster with all these <clears throat> guys making seven figure annual on seven figure annual contracts that guys who were there making 350, 300, 250 a year, they were never going to have the opportunity to wrestle them, it just, or at least beat them anyway. Um, one guy that I thought uh, could have done really well was, do you remember Blitzkrieg? He was only there. Yes. Him he, and uh, Juventud Guerrero on the pay-per-view, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. I think that was that Spring Stampede. Spring Stampede 99, yeah. We have 99. to 99. We have to cover that soon. We will eventually. That was a really good show, as I recall. And um, he was somebody who I think could have could have been somebody in WCW, but I believe he quit and became got in, and became like a computer guy. He worked in the yes. computer biz. <laughs> so I mean, that really tells you all you need to know, doesn't it, about his faith in WCW. He comes in there gets lauded for his performances. Oh, this guy's going to be a huge star. It's like, right, we're giving you this steady job with all these benefits, health insurance, and all these other things that you don't get as an independent contractor in WCW on 125000 a year or whatever they were going to pay him. And you can understand why he would have gone for the safe option. So for him, that was probably, I'm sure that was definitely the right career move. Uh, but yeah, yeah, Blitzkrieg really, really stands out as somebody I think he could have done well. Um but I don't know, really. I mean, I can't really think of anyone else. Um, I mean, there was a lot of people there and you think, well, could they have done better? And it's I mean, Brian Pillman, to me, should have stayed in WCW. Like, I'll, yeah, I'll go with Brian Pillman. I know he wasn't low card either. But to me, Pillman should never have gone to WWF. He should have stayed in WCW. And I think he would have done a lot better there. And I think a lot of the things that happened and sadly, the thing that ultimately happened in 97 might not have happened had he stayed in WCW. But of course, we'll never know. Yeah. And um, I mean, when when he was in WWF, he was a a shadow of his former self because of the the fact his ankle had been. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, I don't think Vince ever really got the gimmick. He just never grasped it. Uh, and Bischoff obviously did, as did, as did Kevin Sullivan, because they helped him create it. And I think he would have done better had he stayed in WCW. Fair point. OK, um, next question comes from uh, Segundo Valente via Twitter. Um, if WCW had continued, do you think it would have followed the path of TNA, i.e. being a distant second before fading into into obscurity? Um, well, Liam, you, you have done an epic fan fiction about if WCW had continued creatively. What do you think financially? Yeah, I think this is it. Um... My my fan fiction I've I've written and it's gone quite far so far. I'm up to I'm on I'm on the verge of Super Bowl in 2007. So it's like Super Bowl 17. I'll be I'll be soon booking on that. And we are up to we're we're just getting to Bash at the Beach 2002 with the uh, the serial version on HookedOnWrestling.co.uk. Check it out. But uh, yeah, as you said, the thing about that is it's is it's purely creative. 
and it's uh, it's what some people call like the the trope for it apparently is a fix fic uh in which i'm i'm basically using a a fair few elements of reality with the benefit of hindsight but also eliminating the stuff that went down like a lead balloon some some of which anyone could see coming but some of it you only see come with the benefit of hindsight to be fair i don't actually have to uh to balance the books either you know i try and do <laughs> yeah. i i do write in things that that make sense like people who are available at that time um you know you, you know having a having a balance of, of of performers on the roster that i can actually write for so it's not too swollen the roster and i'm not using people i try and use certain names reality but not the gritty reality that is a company potentially going out of business and as we know, if they were going to continue, it would have been through Fusion. It would have had to be completely independent. And they still would have had to have had uh, the TV slot with Turner. Because when that was taken off the table, the company died. So they needed that little bit of codependency nonetheless. Could they have gone long enough with that to have attracted the interest of a spike like TNA did in 2005? That is the question, I suppose, if they were to actually make that happen. Would Eric Bischoff had learned enough from the failures that he was very much involved with himself to have helped make sure they avoid those for four years to a point where hypothetically a Spike TV may well have been bang up for it? Uh, I think that's what this boils down to. Mm. I mean... I mean, it's like, it comes down to the whole thing, doesn't it? It's like, okay, they might have had the the ingredients for success, but did they have the recipe or would they have had the recipe? And okay, Bischoff had had it before in 95 and 96 and 97 and into 98 when it all started going wrong. I mean, it was still you know, financially doing very well up until February 1999. So, I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, if they got, if the Fusion deal had gone through, They'd retain the TV contracts um, and there was a lot of money behind them. And there was also like an understanding of like, right, you've got a year with this budget. Uh, it's going to be a big budget. But if you're not, if we're not either in the black or at least close by the end of the year, then we're going to do some horrific. We're going to do some savage cost cutting here because this has to make money. This has to make money in its second year. So you've got this year to really make a splash. Uh, and uh, resurrect this company and restore it to its former glory. Would they have done that? I, I tempted to believe that Bischoff would have gone for quick fixes rather than long-term solutions and a long-term uh, rebuild and development, which is what it needed. It was There was no quick fix. They tried the quick fixes and people were fatigued. You know, they, they were indifferent by this point. They felt they'd been burnt too often by WCW for all the reasons why Dean and I felt burned when we went to see WCW Live in past 2000. <laughs> you know, what it was, was in, in a nutshell, they took their audience for granted. That's what yeah. they did. It's like, oh, well, what are they going to do? Are they going to watch Vince McMahon's product? Nah, they'll watch us. They're not going to watch ECW because that's small time. You are, we're on Turner, we're on TBS, we're on TNT. We're big time. You know, we've got all these guys who were big stars 15 years ago. You know, we were doing all this business in 1996. Of course, people are going to put up with whatever crap we feed them. So I, I, I'm not convinced that Bischoff had a winning hand because I don't think he would have had the discipline at this point. And also, and I think this is, you know, the most important thing. I don't think he had the hunger. He admitted in his memoirs 
that he was, you know, when he left WCW for the, I think when he left, when he was basically fired in 99 uh, or removed from his position, he wasn't actually fired, was he? He was removed from his post. He um, was was already like a millionaire. He was already low. He did already um, basically achieved most of his career objectives in WCW. And I don't think he had the hunger and the passion for it anymore. I think he got lazy, complacent, indifferent. I think his ego had taken over and he wasn't listening anymore. And, uh, you know, it was a pride thing for him. And he just felt like, you know, I'm Eric Bischoff. Look what I did. You know, I'm not going to listen to these people who are giving me good advice. So it's hard for me to believe that he would have suddenly um, be gone all sage again and humble and, you yeah. know, in willing to, um, you know, be willing to start again effectively and build yeah, and ground up. Absolutely. I think that's a really, a really good point because I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, had WCW continued and, you know, the TV deal wouldn't, wasn't, obviously wasn't there with Turner and they were losing money hand over fist, they would have needed a, a cash injection. So yeah, let's, let's suppose that TNA never exists and that, and that Bob and Dixie Carter invest their millions into WCW rather than TNA. Surely then some, you know, whoever, whoever is running WCW at that point would simply think we've got some, we've got a cash injection here and, no need, to, no need to worry about what's gone wrong in the past. We've got our money back. Let's carry on doing what we were doing because, yeah. as you say, egos get in the way. They think about what they've done, not what they need to do in the future. And yeah. we've seen uh, what the Carters have allowed to enter a wrestling company, which also segues into me pointing out that Bischoff in TNA in 2010 is Exhibit A of why he, uh, yeah, he absolutely would have trodden over uh, any attempt to revive a goodwill in the brand and there was a little bit of goodwill in the brand because another thing we mention a lot mostly me but dean like concurs a little bit is that the last few months of wcw were pleasant viewing it were they weren't amazing but they really did manage to finish with at least something that resembled a coherent tv program and that is what has gone actually we have a question we have a question from somebody who is singing from the same hymn sheet as you, Liam? Yes, yeah, we, 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 uh, we do. I'm just, uh, I'm just finding it. James Tomkinson. Yes, I mean, well, this, yeah, this, let's let's talk about this because it, it links right let's, in. Here. Let's branch in. Yes, James Tomkinson, who um, he emailed. We've had people on Facebook. We've had on, on Twitter. Email? This one's come. This comes from good old email. Old-fashioned uh, email. email. What's our believe. email address again? Because WCW at, at yahoo.com. Thank you. Um, I recently watched Scott Steiner v DDP from the last WCW pay-per-view, which was Greed, which we, we reviewed very early on, I do believe. Mm. Um, I thought the match was cracking and the audience was great. It was just unbelievable that things were about to come to an end. What do you think would have been the next pay-per-view big, sorry, the next big pay-per-view main events? had the promotion continued into the summer. Yeah, sorry, Liam, I cut you off there because I just thought, well, let's crowbar this question in. I've got no problems with that because that's kind of where I was going. Uh, here's what we do know is that the next pay-per-view would have been May 6th, The Big Bang. They yes. would have attempted to do some sort of resetting, but there was also plans on trying to uh, 
entire bow round some some of the storylines that were that were okay enough that they were kind of keeping coherent that would be rick flair's magnificent seven hill stable they were starting to get due that comeuppance and it was kind of rushed when booker t won the wcw title from scott steiner on the spring breakout season finale of nitro because they wanted that belt on booker who they were signing rather than scott steiner who they really weren't sure if they were going to and they, they eventually did later and regretted it um we know that thanks to an interview we had exclusive interview some time ago with dave penza he told us that he uh was assisting johnny ace during this period where wcw was shoring up their creative direction those last few months and that was bischoff's plan was to have johnny ace run it creatively Dave Penzer and a few other voices would have been involved. A little bit of that old school booking committee was part of the plan. Sounded like Eric Bischoff was mostly going to be planning the, the venues and things like that. And if that was truly going to be the case, going a little bit back to that previous question, yeah, they might have had half a shot there because that's absolutely the, the formation they should have set up, so to speak, another football reference. They definitely should have had... Uh, Bischoff running more more promotional events, bigger picture things, and staying away from the creative process. Uh, but yeah, the the the, the 2010 TNA kind of showed that he did he trampled over that lovely TNA holding pattern they had with Desmond Wolfe and AJ Styles and Kai Angle yeah. having great matches. So you you fear that would have been the case there. So when I when I wrote the fan fiction, uh, I incorporated the the realities of what we knew things like. Uh, the Big Bang event, and I, I had a great big uh, superpowers babyface team of all the guys who'd been coming into uh, to conflict with the Magnificent Seven in a seven-on-seven tag. And then it led on to the next pay-per-view had uh, Scott Steiner getting his rematch and failing to dethrone Booker T. And I think from there it was... Goldberg was a logical challenger and it was a babyface, babyface thing. Booker T versus Goldberg. Who was going to be the 21st century ace of the company? Two guys who should be up there as the aces, as the as the here and now. You've got like legends and veterans like Sting and Ric Flair. Yeah, it was Booker T and Goldberg being put in that in that headline scenario where Goldberg actually took the title from him, but then Booker T lost it and would win it back in the rematch turning hill in the process so you had something there uh so that would have been like the first three months afterwards going like that for me you have to i I think you really do have to have a lot of uh the 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 guys like the shane helmses and the cruiserweights o'hare and plumbo the hot new tag team these guys have to be heavily featured to show that this is a this is a new era but the other thing that's worth considering is is the, considering that they are on Turner at the time, because as we as we now know, no Turner, no WCW. They needed at least initially they needed to stay on Turner. So if yes. they are still on Turner, do they still have access to the the Time Warner contracts? Because obviously, as we know, unless they took a buyout, those were still much there to be collected. And if they've still got TV, they are surely going to want to get the most out of them. And they're going to force those guys to go to work. And they're going to say to Fusion, they're all yours. And that's the basis my fan fiction operates on. 
So you've got access to these guys, surely, but you're also having to make sure that the Helmses, the O'Hares, the Plumbos are heavily featured. And for me, that's how you're looking at for those for those first couple of shows, Big Bang, and then yeah. you're looking at Great American Bash in June. Yeah, okay. Um, incidentally, if um, if you do want to listen back, we uh, we did review Greed all the way back in February uh, 2018, episode number seven, which therefore means it's the first one where we don't sound like we're in the toilet, Liam. Hey! <laughs> hey! Just when um, just when WCW got flushed down the box. Indeed. <laughs> um, Finn, anything to add to that? I mean, the, I mean, one point I would make was that if I mean, obviously my theory before was based upon WCW staying on TV, not that them disappearing from TV, because, you know, Bischoff, of course, obviously, when there's no TV deal there, no TV money, no TV presence, there's no promotion. Mm-hmm. You know, all you've got is a black hole of spending. You know, you're not going to make any money. It's impossible. So that was my theory was based upon them uh, retaining that TV presence. For me, we saw with TNA at the start, the weekly pay-per-view thing, it, it did not work, obviously. Um, and that was a, a money losing company. I mean, it was a money losing company for most of its existence, but certainly not until they ended up on Spike were they yeah. in a position where I think they were almost breaking even. So the, they had to have the TV contract. As far as if they kept going um, with Fusion in charge and then, then have them having access to the Kevin Nashes and people like that. Now, if he's, can you imagine, remember what a disruptive influence he was in 2000? Remember when he went on TV and blasted the company after they'd fired Scott Hall? Yes. I mean, I mean, Scott Hall, a guy who, you know, for all the terrible things you can say about WCW and you can say a lot of bad things, and when they exploited his real-life alcoholism in 98, that was appalling. That should not have happened, right? It absolutely should not have happened. But as far as actually supporting Scott financially um, through the bad times and the less bad times, certainly in 2000 and his behavior backstage, stories a legion of his behavior. Vince would never put up with that. He would have been fired long before WCW axed him. So they kept him on and continue paying him. So to me, when they finally cut him loose and then for Nash to go on TV and blast WCW for doing that, I thought that was the height of ingratitude. It's like, you know what? This guy's in no fit state to be wrestling. He's just not, obviously. And WCW cannot pay him indefinitely. And that guy has done very well out of this company. You know, when he's been, you know, in no state to perform, he's been given tons of time off to go to rehab and all sorts of other things. But if you're saying to people who are under contract, you have to work for that company. Can you imagine how much of a disruptive influence they would be in the locker room. I mean, morale would be go through the floor. You know, people think, oh, it's a new day in WCW. It's not like the way it used to be. You know, there's opportunities now, you know, prospects for advancement, you know, the sky's the limit, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I know Rob Van Dam was going to come in. Joey Styles um, had had, I think, agreement in principle. He was going to do the commentary. Tajiri. Yeah, Dawn Marie was going to come in. I think she had done really well there. So, I mean, you know, ECW had obviously gone to the wall by this point. I mean, a lot of the name talent had obviously gone to WWF, but there were still some people there who could have gone to WCW. There were other people out there, obviously, AJ Styles, remember, he wrestled a couple of matches, didn't he? Yeah, he was Air Paris. So, and there was other people as well. And I think if they'd really had an attitude of we are going to rebuild this company, but it's going to be a long process. Just like, 
you know, the whole sports team ref uh, theory, isn't it, Liam, where I think wasn't it famous like Chicago Bulls after the yeah, uh, they, they all they all do it basically. They do have a, like a rebuilding process where if if things are not going well, they'll they'll move on their big names and they'll try and bring those through. And they they uh, they brace themselves for a period where they're just not going to have a sniff of the championships for five yeah. or ten years during it, while they rebuild up their prospects. But I do while I'm in here, I do want to cut into one thing. I agree with the hypothetical of what you say about having a Nash's in. But here's the thing: where in that scenario, yes, um, absolutely, they could be forced to work because they're under those contracts if they have it but that doesn't mean they will be and it, that, that that means it comes down to whoever's in charge of WSW do they want Kevin Nash on the team I'll give you an example this is just my fan fiction operating on the premise that all of this is true and we don't know for absolute certain but um, these guys could be could be brought in for for little spots to tie up loose ends to do to do one little thing. They're under contract. Some of them have got creative control, and you got to skirt around that. Fair enough. But then they'd be sent back to because you know Time Warner are paying them nonetheless. So it's not like you have to be on there unless they really feel like oh bring Kevin Nash on. He's gonna sort things out. And as you kind of already pointed out, uh, they're not gonna say that because they've seen the damage he's done and he did a lot of damage corporate because as the amazing book from Guy Evans showed us, uh the the outsiders had a lot of corporate enemies because of Scott Hall's behaviour. So I don't think they'll be insisting that he's used. But if if Eric Bischoff, Johnny Ace, like we want to bring him in to do a to do an angle with Scott Steiner. He's in no position to say no, so it's completely up to them uh, to to pick and choose how he's used. So it's a it's a little bit different to how a scenario where he absolutely is going to be on TV at the expense of a of an air raid or a, or a Shane Helms. But yeah. you could use it if you're smart. And this is, this is why my fan fiction is completely hypothetical because uh, re- professional wrestling doesn't use its brains more often than not. But if you're smart, you're just using that star power to, to bridge in the new era and things like that. So I think that's worth considering. Yeah. Incidentally, just when we uh, we mentioned AJ Styles there, one thing, I, I don't think I've ever mentioned this before, but um, if you uh, cast your mind back to the year 2000, when Hamalock had their Transatlantic Wrestling Challenge on um, on Meridian, yeah. um, they used, um, it was representing the NWA, and they used um, a lot of the American guys they used came from um, NWA Wildside, uh, including um, David Young and Rick Michaels, uh, who were a team called Bad Attitude, and one, well, someone that Rick Michaels trained was AJ Styles, and he was actually a, orig- I believe I'm right in saying he was originally scheduled to be one of the American wrestlers on wow. the Transatlantic Wrestling Challenge. I don't know what the details were as to why um, it never happened, but I, I think it, yeah, it was meant to be originally was AJ Styles and Air Paris because they were a team in in Wildside. Something happened, they couldn't make it, and Rick Michaels and um, and David Young came over instead. Um, I, so I, we, I think yeah, I've we, got the answer. I've got the answer, Dean. I think I think AJ Allen had a big gardening job on that week. <laughs> well, he was a landscape gardener, wasn't he? Before he did, before he did the wrestling. So Very good. Time. Yeah. So he, he had a big gardening job on him. He couldn't take time off. It, it could, hey, this is wrestling. It could easily have happened. We've already talked about Scott Hudson. <laughs> so, okay. Um, next question. Um, actually, something we just mentioned there. Um, Johnny McNamara via Facebook asks first of all have you read the recent nitro book and if so what did you think we thought it was fantastic actually <laughs> if you go back to 
um, episode number 61 that we recorded at the very end of May this year, um, we have an exclusive interview with Guy Evans, the um, author of that book. Um, so you can hear all about our opinions on that and and some stories behind the stories. Um, but he also asked, do you think that long term the new NWO would have worked in early 1999 if Lex Luger, Hall, Hogan and Macho Man had still been around by April, May? No. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Well, the, oh. I, as you know, Finn, the, the problems were already evident. It was just another reason to to, to circle around the same guys. Uh, and the, you remember, the, these guys were already still very much on TV when um, the, the wheels started coming off because Hogan was already milking babyface pops and playing for them against Ric Flair, who's supposed to be the good guy after the brand new combined Wolfpack assaulted his son. They then had David Flair turn on Rick for the first of many times. Um, the, 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 I remember we, we referenced back to Spring Stampede 99. That's the main event where Hogan suffered a serious leg injury. And even before that injury happened throughout the show, the, 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 the faction is just so spotty all over the place. There's no unity. There's no cohesive storyline where they're against the other guys. They're just kind of there. It was petering out. And Hogan's injury gave them an out because then they could turn around and say, well, we can't do that now because we've lost Hogan. No, it was already petering out. And that's when they made that switch to uh, senile President Flair favouring Savage, making up with Savage, favouring him, favouring the triad. And you remember, Finn and Dean, we, we spoke a little bit about that on the 25th anniversary of Nitro thing, about there was a, there was a few what-ifs there. Go back and listen to that one. I won't go over that all over again. But but that's how we came there. It, I think the, the New World Order was already died, you know. By the time you had the, the Starcade 97 Sting, that should have been the concrete. And obviously, you keep the... They don't just suddenly disappear. You, you yeah. I, I get the whole... Outsiders if, if I just pause you there, out. Liam, because this actually also links into another question, so I might as well throw this in because we're talking about Let's it already. Do it. Um, John Billington via Facebook, he asked, how should the NWO have ended effectively ah. in what year, 98 or 99? NWAV Wolfpack could have been okay, but after that it was all downhill as we know. So I'll unpause you, carry on, because we're already talking about this. It's funny you should ask that, John. <laughs> Because, yeah, as a very first episode, we covered Starcade 97. Great point to start for us, wasn't it, Dean? And, yeah, um, that that is the end of the NWO as a force, surely. That is when that 18-month wonderful angle, even though they, they, they definitely didn't stick the landing every week of it, uh, you, you you finish it as as the, as the main part of the company there, great. And, yeah, you still have... The Hogan and the Outsiders falling out, that makes sense. You could have an NWO Civil War. I, I didn't mind the whole Hollywood, Hollywood versus Wolfpack idea in theory. It just shouldn't have been the main event. It shouldn't have gone on top of the Stings, the Bret Hart's, the, the Bill Goldbergs when they when they were to come to later that year in 98. So it would have, it would have slowly gone into upper mid-card situation, you know, still like the second-to-last match of a, of a pay-per-view. You've got the Civil War going on, and then you've got Sting, Bret Hart, Goldberg, guys like that in the main event for for, for a little bit of a change. For me, that's how it should have, should have been done. And, yeah, John points out he thinks NWO and Wolfpack could have been okay. Yeah, stick it, stick it in slot two, not the main event. 
you know, give them war games, give them a regular war games. They had that free team monstrosity with the ultimate warrior sticking his nose in. Uh, no, just do a straight Wolfpack versus Hollywood four on four war to settle it. And then it ends and then move on to something else because nothing lasts forever in wrestling. Fair enough. Finn? Um, I mean, to me, I mean, I thought the, the, the reformation on January 4th, 99, I thought that was amazing. Drew like a huge crowd that night. Um, the heat for the Goldberg beatdown was absolutely unreal. WCW was still doing super sellout business throughout February. I mean, and then, it, of course, it all disintegrated with Scott Hall um, suffering. At the, did someone run over his foot in a car park? I think that was with the yes. studio, wasn't it? Did you put that one? There was yeah he's um yeah someone ran over his foot in the car park and I think I think on the same show Scott Steiner got in trouble for beating up a legit paramedic because he assumed it was an indie wrestler. God. So I mean that's two two big elements of of the the new super elite NWO which has come together after you know they had Wolfpack and Hollywood uh, feud in '98. I mean, you got to remember WCW's '98 was fabulously successful, biggest year ever in the company in terms of profitability, um, and the NWO feud was a big part of that. They were selling a lot of T-shirts because there was rival T-shirts. It meant they were selling more of them. So I mean, to you know, no one, no Booker in his right mind could have or would have been able. They might have thought, well, yeah, this is really running out of steam and, yeah, we need to sort of prepare for the future. But if the, if you're still generating that level of money, that level of income from the merchandising and the licensing agreements, because WCW in America actually had sorted out in America, not in the UK, of course, and that's a question I'm sure we'll get to in a moment about the videotape license from someone, um, you know, they were, they were making tons of money. So, I mean, how could they stop doing it? Then it's like, well, we're going to change it now. We're going to get rid of all the jobbers like the Brian Adams and Kurt Hennig at this point had just been reduced to like, you know, like a, an opening match guy. And we're going to have, you know, Hogan and Steiner and all these big stars. We're going to beat down Goldberg and then we're going to reset things and Goldberg's going to chain a command. He's going to come to us one at a time. I think they could have run that feud until summer of 99, uh, Bash at the Beach, if Goldberg had cut through everyone, obviously he beat uh, Scott Hall that sold out, and that was a big hit, sold out 99, did well on pay-per-view, with um, Goldberg seeking vengeance in the ladder match for the attack, of course, at Starcade 98 when he dropped the belt to Kevin Nash. Um, I think there was a lot of mileage in that. Um, and I think, you know, the Ho if Hogan had been the heel, he'd been champ, and Goldberg had been fighting to get to him and finally did so in a cage match, and then beat him to capture the title for the second time, I think that could have been really big. And that, to me, then would have been the time to to end the NWO and just to kill yeah. it off permanently. Okay. But everything had disintegrated okay. prior so, to that, and so it didn't happen. So I'll put a very quick hypothetical situation, combining the things we've discussed here. Um, so if we, if we look at a situation where Sting, Starcade 97, decisively beats Hogan, conquering here, as he should have been, because that's the narrative at the time. He wins that. He's the champion. Wins a Super Bowl rematch. They don't strip the title or anything. It's just he gets his rematch, loses a Super Bowl. That kicks off the Civil War. We have um, Wolfpack and Hollywood going at each other. Second slot, semi-main event mostly, going at each other, preoccupied with each other. Meanwhile, Sting defends. You, got, you can pick out a couple of nice defences for him. He then loses the title to Bret Hart, who turns heel, 
but uh, doesn't become a heel associate of Hollywood or a crone to Hogan. He's the heel and the champion and the top guy. Because if you ask me, babyface Bret Hart was never going to last that long anyway. Had no problems with him turning heel early in WCW because obviously he was on fire as a heel in WWE. It was just how he did it. But he turns heel and robs Sting of the title. He holds it until he's done by the hot new act Goldberg at the Georgia Dome in July while NWO continue to fight each other. Blow that off in war games in September and then you know Hogan can take some time off some other guys can take some time off and just they peter out peter out peter out Goldberg's still dominant he can I don't know have a rematch with Hart or face Sting at Starcade in a big match and then Jan 4th 99 out of nowhere he gets blitzed by the new old order who had no clue were going to unite just completely out of the blue on that night and you have the aforementioned, and then maybe there's a bit more focus because they've got together because they are slipping down the card over 12 months and they're fighting each other, but it's not getting them anywhere. They're, they're being pushed by. So they bring it back just for self-preservation and they address that in the storylines. Then may, maybe that's that's creative. That's how you go. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, hypothetically, you know. I, as you might have noticed from the fan fiction, I love to do this. And if I was ever going to do another podcast, it would probably be just really armchair booking these things to the point where people just want to turn me off. I mean, I mean my problem with it was that, just quickly, is that staying as champion, he didn't really have much enthusiasm for the job. If you go and look at the match he had with Scott Hall, his lone successful defence on pay-per-view an uncensored uh, 98 it would have been. He, you know, it was just, yeah. it didn't have a main event aura. It just felt like a mid-card match. It was the title but, win, not the reign. And we've seen that. Yeah. There's a lot of that. In, that's fine. And that's why they've had, it, we've only taken a few months. Bret Hart turns, he'll take him out. You know, you're basically, all, you, all you've really got, as you kind of said there, is you've got the rematch with Hogan at Super Bowl. Because well, he's I mean, entitled to Brett, a rematch. So. Bret Hart's deflated as well. Bret Hart wasn't that guy anymore. So mm. to me, he wasn't gonna. He wasn't capable of doing that. I think that's just fantasy. Turn and, him heel on uh, Sting, and I don't think he'd be as unmotivated as he was. Well, uh, he did still turn on Savage, and he couldn't really be asked. I mean, he's he wasn't really. But look at the he, circumstances. He Bret Hart didn't want to be in WCW. He didn't. He didn't. And, he was and, a he was a broken man when he got there. Yeah, but and look I mean, at the he, Benoit match at the Kemper Arena. We, you know, he can be motivated creatively. He won't be as good as he was, but he definitely. I mean, a, a title reign. Well, as a yeah, heel, the, over Sting. Yeah, that, that was, the Kemper Arena match was a, yeah. was exceptional. That was a, that was, was about who oh, was motivated by by motivated, Owen. He could yeah. he could have he could have been wrestling for anyone, and, and he would have put that in. I think. I mean, from from when from when I did those evening evening with Bret Hart um, nights. Trust me, I had I had four nights in a row of him being asked a question about WCW relentlessly slagging them off. So he he definitely wasn't a fan. Look, I'm aware that we're running low on time, so we just have to um, just um, move on to a few other bits. Yeah, you yeah. just mentioned. Let's, um, let's, uh, let's fire a few a few with quick fire. Get try and get through. Yeah. A few okay. And um, there's one that you just mentioned now, Finn. So we'll go to that. Um, this is from DC Fadeaway Man on uh, Twitter. Probably not his real name. Oh, um, great, why did great great name? Oh, I wish I'd been christened that. <laughs> Why did WCW not take an interest in the fact that between late 93 and early 97, there was no videotape licensee in the UK? Uh, again, just classic WCW. You've got a market there that's hungry for your product. Your pay-per-views are on TV. Uh, they're not shown over here. Why not release them on VHS? You know, why not? I mean, this is pre-DVD. didn't really become a 
nothing until about 99. So that would have been VHS in 93 to 97. Those tapes would have sold really well, released them in their entirety. WCW had this really annoying habit, I'm sure you're both aware of this, of releasing the official tapes like in uh, early 90s where matches would be edited or matches would be removed. I remember the first time I saw the the famous Pillman-Liger match from Super Brawl 2, and I was thinking, well, yeah, it was a pretty good match. And then I was reading, oh, it's a match of the year. It's like, really? And on the official videotape, they moved, I think they removed something like about seven or eight minutes from it. It it was just outrageous. And they wanted them to fit into, I think it was a two-hour tape, even though it was a two-hour and 45-minute show. (laughs) But in the end, in the UK, it was Silver Vision who picked it up. Oh, really? And they wanted to do Yes, they wanted to do it. I know this because I was in frequent contact with the guy there. They wanted to do it, but they were obviously mindful that WWF was number one in the UK, and this could be a problem for them mm-hmm. if they were also to release WCW videotapes, conflict of interest. So they ended up doing it. They ended up basically forming another company and releasing them. But I don't have an answer as to why it didn't happen between those years. Yet another example of WCW leaving so much money on the table and just, you know, missing an open goal. So the answer is because WCW. Correct. Um, Okay. Uh, GTR 63 on Twitter. Since WWF made a mess of the invasion in 2001, how would WCW have booked the invasion if they'd won the war? Would it have been better simply because they'd have thrown the money at big names or doomed to be spoiled by pettiness? My answer would be it'd be pretty much the same because surely (laughs) we have seen. Now, I'm going to go back a a fair way in history. This is... Liam's a youngster. He's not like our seasoned veterans, Finn. He may not, this may be before his time, but <laughs> in the, I think it was 87, wasn't it? The, the NWA um, Crockett Promotions bought out the UWF. Correct. And um, they had, well, this is where they got Sting from. Um, but the UWF champion, Terry Taylor, he was promised to have a, a title match with Flair and to be promoted as an equal. And he he was basically on the opening match of Starcade 87 being jobbed out before quicker than you could, you could say Red Rooster. And, and it, there's a history that the winners, that I suppose the one exception may be UWFI and New Japan, where New Japan did give them the edge to start with. But generally speaking, the winners always want to make the losers look small time. Yeah, the winners like to rewrite history. They like to rewrite history in their favor and to prove to the world that, yes, they were better all along. And that was really seen. I remember when the invasion angle was just about to start in 2001 and there was all these commentators saying, well, what they can't do is what Crockett Promotions did in 1987 where Dusty's ego took over and he did what was worse for business, not what was best for business. And yeah, Invasion 2001. You look back on it and there were parts of it that weren't terrible. I mean, parts of it, I mean, you know, the the famous episode of Raw the week before the Invasion pay-per-view when... Vince, you know, when Steve Austin's at there, was it the friendly tap bar? It was Tim Oh, yeah, Tim tap. White's bar, yeah. And, uh, you know, we'd had all these angles, you know, Vince is like, I need the old Stone Cold, and Austin goes to the bar, and then Fred Blassie comes out and gives the that team that pep talk to WWF forces, you know, this is the greatest threat we've ever faced ever. Austin's watching on the TV, you know, leaves the bar, drives there, beats everyone up. And the crowd heat for that angle, that last scene where Austin's out there destroying everyone. I mean, 
that's like Davy Boy Smith winning the title at SummerSlam 92. I mean, that was just, to me, that's the greatest episode of Raw ever. And in the Invasion pay-per-view did huge numbers. Like, was it 750,000 buys or 770,000 yeah, buys? It's Enormous the biggest pay-per-view outside WrestleMania ever, isn't it, still? Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't a total calamity. I mean, there were parts of it that I enjoyed. But, I mean, I get what people say. You can't argue with it and say, listen, it was a it was a glorious, unmitigated success. Of course, it wasn't. Ego got in the way. And Kevin Dunn and Vince McMahon were like, well, hold on a minute. You know, we can't have these people beating us. You know, look at all this effort we put into creating this brand. We can't book these people to beat our guys. And, you know, ego just gets in the way of business. What do you think? What's your opinion, Liam? What do you think? I, I, honestly, and it's not just because we're, we, we've gone quite long here, but I really don't think there's much I can add that hasn't already been said. It is, it is literally like a disease that that wrestling companies just have inflicted upon them if they're put in that advantageous position to utilise uh, another roster. The, the only time I ever think it's, it's it's been done with perfect synergy was uh, Ring of Honor and Combat Zone Wrestling. Uh, in the mid 2000s did a really good but that's that's because you know they were still very much their own companies and they agreed to work and they're very careful with the with the 50 50 booking and to make sure both sides had outs in when they were beaten both sides managed to get uh triumphant baby face um resolutions at the end of parts of the feud while not actually dominating the other side so that's the only time i've ever seen it done just beautifully Okay, yeah. thank you for that. We have we'll we'll go for one more question. Um, How about the which five former WCW performers would you invite for Christmas dinner? How about that, that one? That was the one I was going to say. <laughs> I love this question. Navdeep Ray Hill, um, a very loyal listener of ours who often uh, interacts with us on Twitter, he has asked that very question. So yes, um, we'll start with you, Liam. So Christmas dinner. The uh, restrictions in COVID have uh, are long forgotten. Um, and you can invite five former WCW performers round to your gaff for Christmas dinner. Who are you carving the turkey with? Okay, so I'm going to answer this. But before I answer, I'll give a quick shout out to a former guest of ours, Cole Stewart, who almost got his <laughs> question trodden over there by Dean. I think as revenge, because every time we, when we did have Cole on, every time we tried to record, he'd utter the C word just to just to hamstring us. Uh, so I think Dean's trying to censor his question. He wants to know which one would you rather shag, 1993 WCW or 1993 WWF? That's a silly question, Cole, because I'd have both of them. I'm hard core uh back to this question <laughs> i hope you guys got that reference um yeah yep. so, yes um so the five forms i would have and this is going to be very topical with the watch longs dean but that's that's where my head is at the moment i'd have sting and luger's two of the five so i can ask them what's the deal what's with the sting deal? and luger <laughs> i would not invite randy savage because i don't know if you noticed but he's crazy yeah, but Randy Savage would just turn up outside your house wanting to come in for Christmas dinner. I would Dillinger would have to stop him. That's very true. That's very true. I would invite Eddie Guerrero because he'd be the workhorse of the Christmas dinner, just like he's the workhorse of early Nitro. And then I would invite Ric Flair and Woman because they would bring the banquet table. 
I would have some medication on hand to deal with woman's just her, her withdrawal symptoms from being able to cheat in a wrestling match. And then I'd look around and I'd realise that I'd actually got six people there rather than five because Elizabeth was there, but no one noticed her. <laughs> So if you listen to our watch-alongs, all of that would have made sense. If not, sense. you're going to think, what the fuck is Liam going on about? Finn, <laughs> uh, who are your five guests? Well, well I'm, I mean, these were these people did appear on TV, but I'm kind of cheating here because to me, the most interesting people in wrestling are not the wrestlers. They're people who work behind the scenes. So the five I'm going with are Ole Anderson, Bill Watts, I was going to say Paul Heyman, but we can't have Paul Heyman and Bill Watts around the same table. Can oh, we? that would be the best Christmas dinner ever. You're supposed to have family dysfunction. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I'm going to say Terry Taylor, because I want to ask him if it really was his idea. You know, the famous NWO impersonation of the Horseman skit. Oh, yes. Apparently that was Terry Taylor's idea. And I, oh. I, to, I mean, I know maybe Terry would... He's, you know, I think he's known for, you know, embroidering the truth. So, but I would think that Terry, on Christmas Day, he'd come clean and he'd admit it if he was responsible for that. I know Ric Flair was furious when he found out about it. So Terry Taylor, uh, Kevin Sullivan, because he was there for so much of the crazy goings on there. And the last one, I mean, the guest of honour, I'm sure you'll both agree, Vince Russo. <laughs> <laughs> what an assembly of people that was. <laughs> love it my my five would be um my first one is two cold scorpio uh because i had the pleasure of working a few shows with him and he is just literally the nicest man you could ever meet and i would uh, i would i would love to welcome him him into my house and uh and, and have a good chat with him. I think, um, Lord, well, I've called him by his WCW name here, Lord Stephen Regal, um, someone who any time I've ever listened to him in, him on a, a podcast or been interviewed is such a fascinating man to speak, to listen to, to him speak, whether it be about wrestling or British comedy or, or anything. He, he, has, uh, he has stories to tell. My third one, <clears throat> I've got along similar lines to you, Finn. I would love to sit down and talk to Doug Dellinger and hear all the stories he must have seen and heard uh, oh, during yeah. his time there. Um, my fourth one is Missy Hyatt because teenage AS would love it. Um, <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just, I just remember uh, a few years ago in IPW working the show with uh, Tammy Sitch, and I, I, uh, I had to get a photo with her, and we spent quite actually. We, we were um, me, me, her, and a couple of other uh, people that were on the card were all sort of um, hanging out for most of the show because we were all sort of surprises that were were, were coming out, um, and um, yeah, and I remember just having a photo, and it's like. I, if I if I could tell 16 year old me this was happening, he'd be giving me a high five. Um, <laughs> and uh, the fi the last one um, would be Jesse Ventura because he's just crazy, and it would make the conversation at uh, the dinner table very interesting. Imagine conspiracy theorist Jesse Ventura being told he's being a silly bugger by by Lord Stephen Regal. Marvelous. <laughs> Dean, Dean, you're not fooling anyone. We already know that 16 year old. Dean was giving himself a high five over Tammy Sitch. I think you're thinking there of a self high five. 
Yes. <laughs> anyway, we will we will leave it there. Navdeep, thank you so much for, for that last question to round things off. Finn, thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. We have absolutely loved it as always. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I've had a really good time. Hopefully I'll be invited back sometime in the new year. Just like to say thanks to everyone who sent questions in. And if we didn't get to yours, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, we tried. You know, we tried. Um, but yeah, thanks for inviting me. If people want to get hold of you on social media, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Finley Martin. Uh, and obviously, I'm here to plug Inside the Ropes Wrestling Magazine as well. You can find out all the information about that on the Inside the Ropes website. So please check that out. Any last words from you, Liam? Um, no. Fair enough. <laughs> What, what's the deal between Liam and Because WCW? Well, that brings us to an end for this episode and for this year as we finally say goodbye to 2020. Let's hope 2021 is a little bit more normal. However, of course, it has been, Liam, a golden age for podcasting. I will so, make it. I will continue the golden age. I guarantee it. Indeed, we have we have lots of exciting plans for 2021. But don't forget to check out our back catalogue at becausewcw.podbean.com. You can get a hold of us on Twitter at becausewcw or on facebook.com forward slash becausewcw. So on behalf of Liam and our special guest, Finn, want to wish everyone a very happy Christmas and a happy and healthy 2021. Thanks for listening. We'll see you ringside.